This is episode 56 of the Immunology Podcast, Epitopes in the Immune System with Dr. Alessandro Sete. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Rout. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and foster communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Immunology Podcast, rate us and leave us a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. Alessandro Sete from the La Jolla Institute for Allergy and Immunology on the podcast to talk about his research studying the specific epitopes that the immune system recognizes in cancer, autoimmunity, allergy, and infectious diseases. We've also got our usual roundup of highlights and immunology news coming up, but first... A reminder that the 2023 IUIS Congress is taking place in beautiful Cape Town in South Africa from November 27 to December 2nd. Early bird registration is open until August 31st, and we do hope to see you there. All right. Well, summer is upon us. Conference oh, yes. season is over. Sun season is over. We haven't had rain for like a full month in here. Yeah, we have the same uh, problem. So summer finally has arrived to the Northern Hemisphere. I want it to be at least a little cool. I'm going I'm going camping next week, but it's a LARP camp. So it's like an armor and everything called Drachenfest US. It comes from a German LARP called Drachenfest. And I mean, the family are going. And so, you know, a nice, you know, 23 Celsius would be better than 25 Celsius. A, a you know, under 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm. Would be wonderful. A little bit mm. of cooling would be good because I'm going to be running around in a gambeson in armor and I don't want to, uh, you know, sweat to death. Can you please repeat what kind of camp is it? I don't think a LARP live action role playing camp. So there's five different armies that are all going to fight each other with foam weapons, but real armor over the course of a week. And our children are coming too. And so you have to like dress up your tent to look medieval and there's fire pits and stuff to cook with and, you know, lutes instead of guitars. Wow. America is a place for everything. No, no, this comes from Germany. This one is based off the German Drachenfest, which is one of the largest LARPs in the world with like 50,000 people at it. Oh, wow. How kind of never heard of it? Clearly not know. in the same. We're not moving in the same circles here. Clearly a shame. Not. We need but that must that. be something fun to at least to watch or to participate. And I do like that you're making it a family experience. Oh, That's yeah. Kind of cool. I mean, have you ever built like in school catapults or trebuchets or any of those things like in physics class where you have to launch something? Uh, not really. Uh, we uh, were not uh, taught warfare uh, equipment in our. Just imagine now your children can use their trebuchet building skills in real life to launch foam cows at your enemy. You can also foam, like, I don't know, I don't know, maybe catapults uh corpses you know infested with pest yeah yeah yeah, uh, yeah. that's a thing you do you that. get like that's a, a thing dummy corpse and you put it on the catapult and you chuck it yeah anyway let's move on and let's go uh down to our uh topic of the day immunology like every day all yeah, day all day every day is immunology day um all right well, i i can start first i have microbiome immunology and alpha four beta seven integrin signaling as my theme of the day for both papers, but we'll start, but, but it's also cancer immunology. So I'm, I'm, I'm playing in, I'm playing in all the fields here. So the first one is called it's in cancer immunology. It's distant anti-metastatic effects of enterotropic colon cancer derived alpha four beta seven CD eight T cells. 
So first authors are Virginia Filiu and Carlos Gomez Roca. It's in the lab of Christelle Duvad. I think there's a co-PI as well. Uh, I'm just going based off the asterisks here of Maha Ayub. And this is a fascinating paper. So it essentially, so, so take a step back real quick. Alpha-4, beta-7 is the integrin that is for mucosal homing, particularly in the intestine. And so what they show is that if you take, you know, so colon cancer has really bad liver mets. And so you can do models where you inject the metastases in the liver and mice because you can't get metastatic colon cancer in mice very well because the tumors grow too big before they get metastatic and occlude the colon of a mouse and kill them. In humans, this doesn't a problem because we're we're bigger. And so let's say a tumor has to be three centimeters to generate metastases. Well, in a human, that's small relative to the size of the lumen of your intestine. In a mouse, it's big and kills them. So it's a problem of like size, not that the models aren't great. The models are actually very good, except for the size limit. So typically you'll take the cells and inject them already metastatic. And so we, they derive those lines and you put a primary tumor in the colon. So they show that these hepatic tumors, and they also uh, are, 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 you know, will kill a mouse from the, from the metastatic disease. But if you put a syngenic a colon tumor, some of the mice show regression of the disease. So, and in regression, you see shrinking of both tumors. And they show that then if they inject this tumor in other parts of the body, not, not the colon, it doesn't work. But if they put the liver mats in other places like the skin, you get the protection again. The skin metastasis or extra intestinal site shrinks not all the time, but often. And that goes along with the colon cancer shrinking. And what they found is that, that there's a colon-based immune system effect that is derived from CD8 T cells that are alpha-4, beta-7 positive. And if you blockade this with an anti-integrin anti antibody or to kill the cells, or if you use a different line that isn't the same, it doesn't work, and they do some T-cell receptor mapping and antigen wrapping and find that there's clonal expansion of neoantigen marking TCRs and MHCs based on the presence of this tumor, right? So based on tumor antigen in the colon and that these immune cells are going to the metastasis and then presumably killing it. Um, they then also demonstrate that in people, people who have a response tend to have more of these markers, alpha-4, beta-7 T-cells in their metastatic lesions that, that if they're going to end up responding later. So on biopsy, they can look and measure, and then they see the response later on. And they also show that there's better response to immunotherapy in those people. And so if you break out to microstylite stable, which is... We know it works in microsatellite instable, microsatellite stable colon disease cancer. This works better. The checkpoint there blockade works better if you have these cells in your tumor already from the colon derived or colon generated T cells.
So fundamentally, a colon immune response to your cancer is predictive and therapeutic against your metastases. And that's what they then try to drive. So that is my first paper on integrin-related cancer immunology of the colon. But there's more to come because why do it on just one paper? <laughs> you got to stay with the, with the topic. But then, so what's also, I guess, important is yeah, how to study this these models, how difficult it is to to find the right models to uh, to study these diseases if you have mouse as a as a model organism. All right, um, I'm going to talk also about a little bit about um, cancer immunotherapy, and the paper, uh, the first paper I want to talk about is uh, called tumor immune rejection triggered by activation of alpha two adrenergic uh, receptors. And this is a paper was published in Nature. First author, Jing Xing Xu from the lab of Benoit van der Einde at the Ludwig Institute for Cancer Research in Belgium, in Brussels. Um, and this is, I think, an example of, uh, of, of trying to repurpose uh, drugs that are already used for other indications and kind of initial observations you know, indicate that they might be useful for, for some other treatment. And then you try to kind of um, see uh, if you can apply them more rationally and then study the mechanism by which these observations occur and whether you can really take advantage of it. And so, so adrenergic under, receptors uh, are, uh, are uh, belong to the class, uh, to the G-protein uh, couple receptor uh, class. and they are the targets of very well-known uh, hormones such as uh, adrenaline uh, and the and its um, counterpart noradrenaline, and they are and this and the blockers of these uh, receptors are used a lot in the clinic for many uh, regular many uh, effects, and I think you as an MD probably know better. Um, and the study kind of is um, is. Uh, in, inspired by the observation that inhibition of uh, uh, beta um, uh, beta two uh, adrenergic receptors have shown have shown some kind of benefit when combined with a checkpoint inhibition when it comes to cancer treatment and and so there's this idea that uh, because these uh, might act through inhibiting the the the, the one of the main uh, parts of the downstream signaling of these adrenergic receptors, which is the production of the second messenger CAMP uh, by adenylcyclase, uh, and by inhibiting these, uh, in this case, a bit the beta two uh, AR uh, receptors, you can reduce the production of this uh, cyclic IMP. But then the what the alpha two AR uh, uh, receptors. Do the opposite, and they're kind of activated by complementary um, pathways. And in their, in when they get activated, they do the opposite thing, and they inhibit uh, adenylcyclase, uh, and that they're that's decreasing uh, cyclic AMP levels. So the what, what the what the researchers here thought is, well, if we know that by inhibiting the opposite uh, enzyme, we get this beneficial effect, what happens if we actually um, activate the uh, alpha-2 um, adrenergic receptors? 
And they, there's a bunch of, of molecules that do this. And so they, they use a mouse model or they use a bunch of, of tumor models in mice to look in closer into this, uh, uh, this uh, uh, option. So basically, uh, they have a lot of mouse models, a lot of different uh, tumor cell lines. They also work with a xenograft model in which they uh, inject uh, the uh, cell lines or uh, tumor lines derived from, from patients uh, into mice. And then they also then do uh, immunodeficient mice. And then they introduce uh, PBMCs from donors to initiate an allogeneic kind of these are response against these tumors because now these donors and the tumors are not matched. And they use that as models to kind of see whether by adding these uh, alpha 2 AR agonists, they can uh, modify the, uh, the anti-tumor response. And interestingly, they basically see that for a wide uh, selection of tumor models, uh, both cell lines and, and, and patient-derived um, xenografts, Adding uh, alpha-2 uh, AR agonists actually uh, seems to reduce tumor growth uh, in, and increase survival of the mice. And they have this, this huge figure with lots of different survival curves and, and tumor growth uh, curves showing it for several different models. And uh, this also seems to be beneficial in the case of certain tumor models that are known to be quite resistant to immunotherapy, which seems very interesting. Um, some of examples of this, uh, in, of this agonist are, uh, yeah, uh, molecules such as, uh, guanabens, clonidine, clonidine, and guanfancine, I guess that's a way of pronouncing it. Um, and so they, throughout their, their, their study, they, they look into different of these, different, uh, of these molecules. Some molecules don't act, they not always act the same, the same way, but they all really seem to suggest that, uh, activating this pathway is beneficial for the immune response. Um, so, and on, on, on top of that, they have a, a alpha, uh, so a mouse that is knockout for these alpha-2 antinergic receptor. And they see that basically the effect of this agonist is basically abolished. So you really do need uh, this enzyme to be pre present, not on the tumor itself, doesn't matter. What matters is in the, that it's present in the immune system of the recipient. And when they look, so when they start looking into the immune response in these tumors, uh, one of the things they, they notice is that they have an increased infiltration of CD8 cells and a higher activation of both CD8 and CD4 cells. And this kind of they, and, and this, I guess, guess makes sense if you still, if you start seeing a better rejection of the tumors. Um, they show uh, they use an o MC38 o uh, OVA model, so an M MC38 cell line expressing OVA that is partially responsive to anti-PD1 therapy. MC38 is known for being very um, quite um, aggressive, and they show again that by using, uh, in this case, they focus on clonidine as one of the inhibitors that really uh, they in increases uh, the the survival. Uh, of the of the mice, but then when they look into the immune cells inside the tumor, one of the things they notice is that they see better survival of CD8 cells within the tumor, and a reduction in the number of immunosuppressive myeloid cells. And this this is very critical because when they look into digest material from the tumors, 
they then they do single single cell RNA sequencing and they kind of characterize how the tumor uh, responds to treatment. It's really clear that in in at least in this in this uh, uh, in this settings, macrophages partic- uh, represent a large majority of immune cells that are, are infiltrating the tumor. So about eighty seven percent of uh, CD forty five positive cells. So. Um, and interestingly, they see that one of the major changes that they see in this um, in the immune cells uh, of treated tumors of, of uh, tumors from treated mice is a, a huge, uh, an important shift in the phenotype of these macrophages, these infiltrating macrophages, towards a more phagocytic, more pro-inflammatory profile. And these, they suggest, seems to be the reason that the kind of the part of the way this 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 change in the in the, in the T cell response is driven by uh having a better uh immune simulation from macrophages or we can also say less immune suppression because also macrophages and other myeloid uh cells in the tumors are famously known for often providing very uh, strong immunosuppression to the to the tumoral um to the inside the tumor they also look into some uh, signatures uh, from from uh, tumor uh, from human tumor data. I have to say that I found that less um, uh, convincing, um, but it is really hard to pick up uh, these these signals uh, when um, in, in this big database. So I, I don't I don't take that uh, so much against them. So what I also thought was a little bit not ideal is the fact that they give really large um uh doses of these uh, uh agonists as at the kind of the 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 rate of five milligrams per kilogram per day in IP injections. And that actually interestingly seems to well maybe not interestingly but expectedly that actually has a lot of also effects on the mice uh because they um they become kind of um and uh what's the word sedated because that's what these agonists do. So that's also not super easy to treat the mice with this with this uh, agonist, and apparently even uh, these alpha two agonists uh, increase the aggressiveness of male mice. So they they were, yeah, your Jason, you don't see, but Jason is, is is agreeing. So apparently they could only use female mice for these experiments. Well, uh, what's interesting is that clonidine's dose in people is. You know, a lot a less. Mil- a milligram of clonidine is a lot of clonidine. Yeah, yeah. I, I dose it, you know, 0. 0.1, 0. 0.2, 0. 0.3 migs in a human in a yeah. day. Yeah. So, so point. You said one mig per kig. Five mig per kig. That's, I I don't even believe that they're by uh, activating their specific receptor. Then. I mean, that's a fair. I, I think that's a fair um, criticism. I have to say that after I read the paper, that my first impression was like, oh, this is very straightforward, but then I'm looking a little bit into the details. I also thought, whoa, that's a lot. And they do mention it in the in the in the in the um but why in the not publication. logical doses? That's weird. For lower doses, they don't see these effects. So that's why. That is the 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 quick answer to your to your question. Mm, something is um, yeah. So would we treat people with this agonist at this concentrations? Given that it would also have some kind of severe, not severe, but clear effects on this sympathetic, uh, you know, uh, 
system like probably going to have effects on 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 the CNS. I don't know. You you know better, but but it was still an interesting read, and they tried a lot of different models. So I mean, a for effort. Yeah, well, that's very interesting. That the dosing, well, I don't know, GPCR signaling guy here, the dosing bothers me emotionally just a little bit. But what I what really I do emotionally like is more alpha four beta seven signaling. Oh, no, no more. Hey, please, hey it's course no. anti alpha four beta seven antibodies course through my blood at all times. So I'm I'm particularly invested in it. So okay. this one is a <laughs> microbiota modulated checkpoint directs immunosuppressive intestinal T cells into cancer. It's in cancer immunotherapy. The author list is uh, Maureen Fideli et al. Corresponding author is Lawrence Zitvogel. And this was a really interesting paper for me because it's the opposite story of what we just heard. So there's this known effect that they explore in more detail that antibiotics treatment before immune checkpoint therapy can have, you have worse outcomes to it. So that's an interesting fact. And so they're trying to go, hey, what's causing that, right? Where, what's, what's going on here? So, so given that whole scenario, what they found was that the other side of alpha four beta seven in epithelial cell is mad cam one, which is that he, which is the component on the epithelium, right? Alpha four beta seven integrin being on the immune cells. So they find that normally speaking, you, you have eubiosis with antibiotics, or if you throw a specific bug in on top of things, you get more of this genus called entrocluster. And that presence of that down-regulates MADCAM1. Down-regulation of MADCAM1 allows... IL-17 positive, ROR gamma T positive, alpha-4 beta-7 positive Tregs. So alpha-4 beta-7 Treg. But thinks IL-17 and ROR gamma T. To leave the gut and they go to the tumor. And in the tumor, they are immunosuppressive. So normal immunotherapy is can be effective and they do this with lungs cancers right so they do these with tumors and systems in mice that or orthotopics this isn't colon cancer tumor this is just colon immune cells but if you give antibiotics or an alpha 4 beta 7 antibody to block it or anti-1 mad cam or do genetic ablation these immune cells do not home to the gut they go to the peripheral tissues where they're immunosuppressive and ablate the effect of immune checkpoint therapy, anti, you know, anti-PD-1 therapy. And they have been able to see that in people given antibiotics, outcomes are based partially antibiotics, but then predictively even better based on if they see this dysbiosis of this organism showing up. They can feed mice this organism. It causes the effect as well right? You don't have to just do antibiotics. It's this grows up in the absence. When you give antibiotics to get dysbiosis and this overgrows, 
or they can see that in people more of this bug existing is a negative prognostic indicator. So in the end, you have a bad acting microbe that will downregulate MADCAM1 after antibiotic usage, which causes immune cells to leave the intestine and go to the periphery tissues where they are immunosuppressive. They do a lot of work. They show there's no difference in clonal expansion or expansion generally of the T-cell compartments based on this bug. It's all about homing. And this screws up the homing and things leave the gut that shouldn't and become immunosuppressive elsewhere. So where in the gut immunosuppression, good. In cancer, bad. All based on the antibiotics you took for that infection you got with your cancer or before your cancer the week before. Wow. What a story. I like it. Yeah, I thought it was pretty. It's the opposite side, right? It's the, the other paper was these alpha four beta seven activating immune cells in the colon had effects elsewhere. And in this one, it's these suppressive ones leaving that are bad. Yeah. And, and isn't there the option of having the op like kind of similar to your previous story, having they don't see any effector T cells doing the same and helping the, the anti-tumor response. Is that a thing at all? I mean, it makes sense that you have a lot of FOXP3 positive, suppressive, regulatory T cells. Right. These raw gamma, these are the raw gamma T FOXP3 positive. Uh, right, positive. right. And they're in the gut normally. That's where they should yeah. be. But if you yeah. have them leave because you get rid of MADCAM1 because your antibiotics dysbiosis, or if you just force it, or if you yes. have alpha 4 beta 7 flowing through your veins, like some of us, anti-alpha-4, then they can go to where there's tumors and then they make it so your checkpoint blockade therapy doesn't work. Does the, but aren't there any effector cells that live in the gut that do the same, that have the same happens to them and then they move? Yeah, but those effector cells, because this isn't about colon cancer, unlike the first paper where in colon cancer, those effector cells are good actors elsewhere, right, mm -hmm. on the tumor. This is like lung cancer transplant models or people with lung cancer generally. And so there's no prime specificity. activating antigen specificity in the T cell compartment of the gut that's leaving, but there is just generic suppressive capacity leaving. Yeah. Because while there is antigen specific suppression in the gut, there's a lot of generic suppression just because there's so many antigens, you can never have them all. And so those leave too. And now you have suppression everywhere. Wow. I mean, that's so important, right? Uh, for uh, it's obviously a very uh, active field at the moment, understanding like what is the microbiome that you want to have if you have cancer, especially if you're going, undergoing certain treatments and immunotherapies. I am I, just really excited uh, about us understanding this and, you know, in the future, getting some kind of microbiome treatment before you start your checkpoint inhibition for your tumor or something like that. And then to that it has shown to improve your chances of survival. So yeah, again, you know, microbiome one cancer. Well, in this case, microbiome zero cancer one because they they played against us. But but the I'm other sure one, we... yeah, yeah, that's always it's always an interesting story, right? Microbiome immuno oncology is a very hot field, and I can say yeah. no more. <laughs> <laughs> All right, nice. So you know what's another hot field? Uh, that I like uh, is, you know, T -cells. cell therapy, T cell, cell therapy, gene therapy, uh, all those uh, interesting uh, new novel 
treatments. Okay, so I'm going to talk about, it's a, it's a short paper. It's more of a report of a, a clinical trial of the f first uh, patients from a clinical trial. But I think they made quite a splash a couple of weeks ago when the initial, you know, press release was released. And I was following the story and I thought it was very interesting. And now finally we have the official paper on the New England Journal of Medicine. And the, the, uh, the article is called Base Edited Cart. Uh, CAR-7 T-cells for relapsed T-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia. First author, Robert uh, Robert Chiesa, Chiesa, and from um, uh, last author is Wasim, Wasim Quasim, from, and they are from the Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children at the NHS uh, in the UK. And this, I like the story because I think it's, you know, I mean, there's many clinical trials uh, going on when it comes to cell therapy, but every once in a while, there's one that really, you know, is something new, something uh, they put together uh, a lot of novelty. And in this case, they had some really nice results for some of the patients. So um, I thought it was worth discussing. So this is um, a phase one clinical trial showing uh, the effect, we're gonna initial initial results from using an allogeneic CAR T-cell uh, treatment for uh, T-cell leukemia. Until now, all of the approved CAR T-cell therapies are you know, targeting mostly CD19 and other um, uh, antigens that are pre present on, on B-cells and they're useful for these B-cell leukemias. But T-cell leukemias are always complicated also because CAR T-cells are T-cells. So uh, if you look for something that is expressed in T-cells, you need to find a way to prevent the CAR T-cells from killing each other. So that's what they do in this paper, in this, in this, in this study. They use CRISPR, uh, but not traditional CRISPR uh, that, does, that generates double-strand breaks, but using cytidine deamination guided by CRISPR, uh, this famous base editors, uh, to mediate more precise editings that do not in, uh, include a, a double-strand break in the in the genome of the cells, and this uh, has you know improves the safety profile of these products because then you don't have the chance of having you know weird chromosomal translocations which are known to be an issue with, with, with traditional CRISPR approaches. And um, they make very, you can often be, uh, obtain very precise editings, like one base to another, uh, in which you generate a stop codon or you mess up with an intronic, like an intron-exon um, border, preventing proper splicing. Uh, and this, now they show in this in this uh, study, they show that you can use this these tools to generate a highly potent uh, T cell product that can be used uh, against uh, T cell lymphomas. So, what are these car? They call car seven T cells, basically PVMC derived T cells. These are from uh, non related donors, so this is an allogeneic product in which they use uh, base editing to knock to not knockout, sorry, to modify bases in the genes of the, T, uh, the TCR beta chain to remove the endogenous uh, TCR of the cells to prevent, you know, graft versus host disease. 
Um, they use, uh, they also, of course, target CD7, which is the target of the car the cells will express. So to prevent fratricide between the, 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 the CAR T cells. And they also um, uh, deplete CD52 to, uh, to give them some resistance to treatment with uh, alemtuzumab, which is used to deplete uh, the, the leukemic cells as well. Basically, they show using this, this deaminase, they use a, a deaminase uh, enzyme, and they basically they, they generate a citidine to thymine conversion, therefore messing up uh, codon here and there. And they show that they can very efficiently generate these cells. Uh, on top of that, they transduced a car, a car against CD7, and they end up with this CAR7 uh, T cells. Uh, now they show that they can they can do it. They show that they prevent uh, they prevent um, uh, chromosomal translocations by using the system that the cells look really good, um, and they can then in the end after they 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 expand the cells they can remove any cells that still have this this because they're all you know external uh antigens they can remove any cell that still has a tcr or still has cd7 and then they can become they can get a product with a very high purity of with what they want so they treated three patients three uh you know young patients with this therapy and I think the first patient is the one that made the most uh, when it was in the news, and she and this 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 patient was very uh, well studied because she responded extremely well to the therapy, and um, and so basically she was treated with uh, a round of these of this product, which again is allogeneic, so it's like from a third party donor, and um, she she recovered very well. And what was interesting, so of course there were some levels of some, some toxicities related to the therapy, but everything was very manageable. And, uh, and, and, the, and this girl really went into very you know, into remission. And then after, I think it was 20, 28 days, so they did a treatment of 28 days in which they assumed no residual disease. And then, because this is important, um, they treated the, they they treated the the, the patient again with with lymphodepleting uh, chemotherapy. They remove the 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 cells, and then they do another round of bone marrow transplantation. And this is important because otherwise, you need to recover that your T cells eventually, and that's how they do it. Uh, otherwise, your you you would be the 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 problem with this this particular car is that it basically can target any T cell. And then you would be uh, forever lymphodepleted in that sense. But they show that after they they do a second round on the lymphodepletion, they get rid of the therapy, and then they put a, again bone marrow transplantation, and the, the the patient recovered very well. This was not the case for the second patient, however, and this I think was cool. It's good to see how uh, yeah risks are taken. The second patient. Did not could not survive the lymphodepletion, the initial lymphodepletion, and the uh, extended lack of T cells, uh, and contracted a very severe aspergillus infection in in the lungs. And unfortunately, she uh, I don't remember if it was uh, he uh, died of complications from not having T cells. So that's it's very hard. 
the, so these patients also were in risk for C, CMV, uh, uh, reactivations, uh, EVV activations, all, all kinds of these opportunistic infections. When you have a depleted immune system, they can be very dangerous. And there's a third patient that also was treated with the therapy, uh, but is now has been recently treated. So she, uh, he did, uh, um, after 28 days of treatment, they, de they do uh, show that there was, they couldn't detect any uh, leftover disease. Uh, and now there's, they're, um, the, they are going further with the new stem cell transplantation uh, to, to see if they can recover the, um, the patient, uh, the patient's immune system. So I think as I really like the well, because I like, uh, you know, cell therapy, but I like it because it's an allogeneic therapy. That means that you don't need to get the patient's uh, cells, which can be very limiting. Uh, unsurprisingly, PVMCs from oncological patients are often not the best starting material for these therapies. Uh, you can make these therapies and you can have them stored and then you can give them to many patients from one batch. You can treat many patients. Um, and the fact that you can kind of do the treatment until there's no residual disease and then uh, pursue a new lymphodepletion and, and bone marrow transplantation, I think it's really, really good, a really good way of managing the uh, inescapable toxicity of uh, T-cell-directed uh, immunotherapy. So I, I'm looking forward to the rest there. They want to treat 10 patients in total for the phase one uh, trials. Yeah, that's super interesting. Super, I think you make a point about the risks, but it sounds like there could be a really new cool technology here. It's very exciting to hear. Just being able to target T-cells, double-edged sword, but you know their unique use of genetic engineering, I think is very exciting. All right. Well, we're going to be speaking to Dr. Alessandra Sete at the La Jolla Institute for Allergy and Immunology in just a moment. But before we get to that, if you're enjoying the conversations on this podcast, we invite you to read more interviews on the Stem Cell Technologies webpage. In the Immunology Profile Series, immunologists tell their stories, discuss their research, and voice their thoughts on current topics in immunology. You can find these interviews at stemcell.com slash immunoprofiles. Joining us today is Dr. Alessandro Sete. He's professor and head of the Div Division of Vaccine Discovery at La Jolla Institute of Allergy and Immunology in California. And he's going to be talking to us about his research but also, I, I would like to hear more about his career in general. I think he has a very interesting history, and also a lot of this research is close to my to my heart uh, in the sense of understanding T cell, how T cells see the world. Professor Seta, thank you so much for joining the Immunology Podcast. Thank you, Brenda and Jason. It's uh, it's great to be here. So you are originally from Rome, uh, so you're from Italy, and and you were, no, you started your uh, career in immunology at a very exciting time. And I know that some of your early work understanding uh, how MHC2 presents antigen to, to T cells. And it, I think it's very interesting. And it was it happened at a moment in which we really didn't understand much of what was going on. So I was wondering uh, if you would be maybe try like to share with us a little bit about your experience uh, in, in, in those early days immunology in the in, in 
mid uh, 1980s and also uh how you pivoted through uh, to uh industry so you worked also when you moved after you moved to the united states you ended up working for many years at a company uh developing uh immune immune um therapies were understanding the immune system of her therapy and now you find yourself working on at La Jolla Institute so maybe if you wouldn't mind to share with us a little bit your career arc because I think it's very interesting our listeners would really like to know thanks for asking so I I, I went to school in uh, in Rome in Italy and I graduated and then I uh, left to go to Denver at the National Jewish Hospital uh, and I had a, um, a postdoc with Howard Gray that was at that point chairman of the Department of Medicine at National Jewish Hospital. Very exciting times was uh, uh, Kapler and Marek were there uh, and with Howard Gray and uh, um, a number of very prominent investigators. So I, I was very, very uh, shocked I arrived uh, in the middle of January in Denver, never seen so much snow on the ground. I never saw people that actually wore real cowboy hats. <laughs> I, I thought I was in a movie. I, I loved it. And it was very uh, pivotal time, as you were mentioning. At that point in time, believe it or not, it, it was not clear that the function of MHC was to bind peptides. And um, Howard lab and Emil Yunanwa's lab, which recently passed, uh, really generated the biochemical evidence that that was the case. And uh, it was very controversial because um, other uh, people thought that, uh, no, that uh, there were two different receptors, one for MHC and one for peptides. And I remember we presented our data. I was terrified. I was a young postdoc. The, um, world meeting of immunology just uh, right after one of the main proponents of the fact that we was not clear through and uh, and there was one thing that was uh, I remember in particular was very criticized because we were doing receptor ligand interaction with captured plots and I could never show that a hundred percent of the MHC that we had in our uh, test was active, was capable of binding peptides. Of course, now we know that it's because the MHC is fully saturated with endogenous peptides. But we could show that maybe 5% of the MHC was active. And so people were criticizing this and saying, oh, this is not MHC binding of peptides. It's probably some contaminant. And I remember I redid those gels, I don't know how many times, and I was telling Howard, I can't make it any more pure. I mean, this is, this is what it is. It's not. Um, so anyway, those were exciting times. And as you're saying, uh, Ben, in, uh, this was in 1985 to 88. And in 88, uh, became clear that maybe this could be used, this understanding could be used to uh, maybe have some applications. And uh, I was very interested in that. And Howard Gray started this company that was funded from money from uh, um, San Diego. And um, so we moved 
In 88, we moved to La Jolla and we started this company called Cytel, uh, which was very interesting. And then um, Howard left uh, and went to the La Jolla Institute and I stayed on. And then eventually I, um, I was interested in vaccines and uh, uh, we spun off with uh, two other colleagues and we founded a new company called Epimune. Uh, and uh, so I was at Epimune until 2003, uh, and I was a chief scientific officer there. Uh, so I, I really loved to do clinical trials and testing things for real in humans. And uh, at the same time, though, the company became more and more focused on manufacturing and clinical trials and investors. and. And I'm kind of a technology guy. I'm a research guy. And so I, I, at the end of the day, I said, well, this is a very important job to make, to take this further, but I really, it's not me. So I told them, look, uh, bye. Uh, and uh, uh, and we, we left in very good terms. I mean, I, because obviously I, I wanted them to be successful. And, and I went back to academia and uh, I've been there since 2003 at the La Jolla Institute. But still, in a way, a lot of what I, I brought back some of my biotech mindset into academia. A lot of what we do is actually also still really focused on having clear goals for project, timelines, program managers, uh, and, uh, and doing a lot of contract work because also, you know, if, you, if you're doing immunological evaluations for a vaccine, you, you get it, need to get it done <laughs> on time so that the information can be used for the next step. It's, uh, it's not up to you to say, well, you know, I was something else that was more interesting today, no. We got to get it done. So I was wondering if you could, I'm also in biotech. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how, applying that biotech mindset to academia and how it's led to some of your more recent successes. Well, I mean, the, the that's a good question. I, I guess in some of the uh, work we did in COVID uh, in collaboration with Shane Crotty, really um, maybe one thing that was influenced by a, a, a biotech mindset is the fact that you identify what needs to be done and you put together the expertise that is necessary. So one of the reasons why we were able to move fast is that a number of different things came together from uh, collaborators at UCSD that had access to samples from people that were uh, infected and then later on vaccinated to Shane Crotty's lab that had this uh, tremendous expertise on B cells, the interaction between antibody and T cell responses. And my group had the expertise of uh, uh, characterizing T cell responses and making peptides and identifying epitopes. And so basically you just, rather than trying to learn to learn yourself is more fun, right? Because you can put the postdoc there and then after six months, uh, they'll figure it out. And it's a good learning experience. 
But if you want to get it done, you know, you, you, you assemble a team of people that are the best in the world to do what needs to be done and, make, and they can do it fast and, 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 and move. And then also you have very clear timelines uh, for when step A is going to be done so that people that need to do step B will be able to, uh, to take it on. Maybe this is a good time to talk about a little uh, about those the, that research that you did around COVID at, and the uh, implications of finding not only T cell immunity against COVID, but also some level of cross reactivity between other coronaviruses, uh, the immunity against other coronaviruses and SARS-CoV-2. I remember that I I read that the paper that you you published. I think that was the one with, with Shane Crowdy, in which you showed that there were many epitopes that were shared from common cold coronaviruses, uh, and then pe the people already had. Uh, were reactive against these epitopes, naive people, the people that hadn't been exposed to coronavirus. So maybe it's it's a good time to maybe to ask you about what do you think, how do you think that research uh, came about, and what do you think now that we have a lot more studies understanding T-cell responses against coronaviruses, where do you think, where are the main learnings that we got from our study of T-cell responses against COVID? Right. Yeah. So that that observation came about really early on, and uh, it was the negative control, as sometimes happens in science at the unexpected. So uh, we were measuring these responses from people that had been infected with COVID, uh, and uh, so we need a negative control. And so we thought. Well, as a negative control, we'll get samples that we had banked from years ago before, so we could not have possibly been exposed to COVID, and that was going to be the baseline negative control. And um, we did those experiments over and over and over again because those people, some of those people, had actually perfectly good memory responses <laughs> uh, that recognized uh, some of the uh, SARS-CoV-2 peptide sequences. And so uh, that was the, the basic fundamental observation of this cross-reactive immunity. And uh, this was quickly also, other labs were coming up with the same observations, uh, uh, TL's lab in Germany and many others and uh, had essentially the same thing. And so this was in a way uh, a pivotal observation, but then came back, uh, I think with full significance of that was appreciated later on. I mean, if I can basically outline the, I think where we at with that, there has been now a lot of different uh, studies and data that suggest that T cells can have a fundamental role in modulating disease severity. In some cases, may have a role in actually preventing infection, but prevention of infection is mostly mediated by neutralizing antibodies. And what was seen early on after the, uh, the vaccinations started, that the neutralizing antibodies waned more rapidly and the T cells actually were fairly constant. And in fact, that was what's seen also in the... Uh, so to speak, uh, where 
it was clear that even before variants, in a few months, the protection against infection was decreasing, but the protection against disease, severe disease, was maintained. And so that, that's kind of the role of T cells in a nutshell. And in fact, this was further correlated by the variants because um, the variants escaped neutralizing antibodies and infections went through the roof, but the variants do not escape very much T cell responses and protection was maintained. So at that point, then you can go back on this observation, the different, uh, that there is this pre-existing memory and it was mapped to that this pre-existing memory, at least in some cases, clearly mapped to other coronaviruses, common cold coronaviruses, beta cervicovirus, uh, beta coronaviruses, and so forth. And so the concept is that not only the T cells can um, deal with variants, but maybe there is cross-reactivity of T cells across different coronaviruses, uh, which is uh, interesting. And that is actually uh, one of the main interests of the lab right now is this concept. So if there are regions that are highly conserved across all the different coronaviruses, maybe we can focus the immune response on these conserved regions. And the value of that is that that, that would be a pan coronavirus uh, vaccine component. And I want to be absolutely clear, but I'm not advocating this should be done instead of antibodies. I love antibodies. Antibodies are good. <laughs> if you have neutralizing antibodies or even non-neutralizing, it's probably very good. We should do both. But at the level of T cells, this is very interesting because there is a lot of concern about other specifically, for example, other cervicoviruses that may be lurking in bats or in other uh, animals. So that this could be really a, a way to cover your bases against any other uh, coronavirus or cervicovirus that could be jumping out and causing a, a, a new pandemic. And so uh, that is, I think, a very important component. And again, this vaccine component would not necessarily prevent infection, but if it does prevent disease, that's uh, that's good. In, in a way, it is a situation a little bit where we are now, right? Where people still get infected, but uh, the death rates, for example, in the US at the lowest level ever. Uh, so it's still clearly lots to be done in COVID, long COVID, huge problems. So I'm not saying everything is solved and now we should rejoice, but to have that component, a, a T cell component, or a, a, a number of different mechanisms that can deal with disease severity, uh, regardless of infection, is key. So one of your key ways you get all these discoveries is your epitope work. I was wondering if you could describe, for people who aren't familiar with how you actually do that type of hard work, can you describe it in the technology a little bit and how you're able to as you said, you know, understand that there's specific repeat epitopes in coronaviruses that are shared or what have you. Because I think that key structure function, almost biochemistry, molecular biology, 
th- those techniques and tools are hard and that's kind of one of the things you're known for. So how, how, how do you do it? How do you do the magic? Right. I, actually, it's um, from our point of view, one of the beauties is it's actually it's not that complicated. In a sense, it is complicated, uh, but it, the, the process is fairly linear. So you need, you need sequences, of course. Uh, because if you don't know what the sequence of virus is, that's the end of the story. But if you know the sequence or the sequences of a family of viruses, so let's let's start from one sequence, right? So Wuhan. So you had that sequence, and then we have algorithms that scan the viral sequences and uh, um, determine what are reasonable candidates for uh, being recognized by human T cells. Uh, we factor in HLA because, as you know, of course, T cells are HLA restricted, and HLA is highly variable in humans. So we uh, we we look at the HLA space and incorporate it, this in our predictions, and then we make those peptides, and we make a lot of them, and uh, that is, and then we put those peptides. We offer those peptides for recognition from people that have been infected or uh, are convalescent and ask what does the memory T cell see? And so that that's your screen, so to speak. And so um, one key component there is that this can be done fast in a sense, the sequence, uh, again, in the case of SARS, the sequence was available rather quickly and we can make peptides very quickly. And you can do work in the lab without having to have to deal with the virus. I mean, some of these uh, nasty pandemic viruses, are, they have all sorts of issues, you know, BSL-3 or 4 or whatever. And so safety issues. We don't need to deal with any of that because we can just make short 9, 10, 15 amino acid fragments, which are completely obviously safe or not uh, in any way uh, related to a live pathogen uh, in terms of uh, biosafety considerations. And so we can, and and, and, uh, that was the issue again with uh, SARS-CoV-2, we can get going very, very quickly. Uh, The other component is we look at memory T cells and key is the word memory. So we can look, the good thing of memory T cells is that they stick around. So we can look um, after the virus is gone and the memory T cell is still there and tell us what is being recognized. And last point, which is also very interesting is you can look at different outcomes. So you can say, okay, what does the T cell response look like in people that had that are going to have or have had a more severe outcome versus people that did well for um, SARS? But this is a general concept. So, for example, you can say, what does the T cell response in looks in someone that has severe asthma in response to uh, pollen, as opposed to people that 
don't have severe asthma in response to pollen. So you can ask, what is the difference at the T cell level between disease and health or bad disease and not so uh, bad disease? You can ask in the case of dengue, what's the difference between the people that have hemorrhagic disease versus people that get infected and um, do not have that degree of ravaging disease that requires hospitalization. Uh, you can do that in uh, Parkinson. Uh, what's the difference between people that have Parkinson and people that don't have in terms of their capacity to recognize uh, fragments from the alpha-synuclein or whatever? And then hopefully your vaccine looks, uh, looks like the good, not the bad, right? You're trying to recreate a good immune response, a response that resembles what has occurred in people that successfully fought the disease. Yeah, and I think that's a, that's a theme that we see a lot uh, when it comes to vaccination, but also, you know, therapeutic using monoclonal antibodies. Uh, we have had guests that, you know, look for those people that are convalescent, that survived infection, and they try to find uh, antibodies that are recognized and they're naturally occurring and they're recognizing that particular pathogen. But it, it is always very hard, right? Because we still don't completely understand. Uh, I mean, most of this understanding, this this um, the recognition or this interactions between a TCR and an antigen requires a lot of still a lot of experimental data, right? We still need to do do experiments, and this can take. I mean, the amount of different TCR sequences is is enormous that a, a repertoire of a person is very, very large. Even if you have a person that's convalescent or you still, it takes a lot of work to try to find those TCRs or trying to understand those interactions. And I think this is, I know a lot of computation is required to maybe really mine for the hard to find uh, specificities of oftentimes it's not obvious. Also in the case of, or maybe, tumoral responses in which you have a lot of these diesels there and you don't know what they're recognizing necessarily. Um, I just bring this up because uh, as part of, you know, trying to advance this, this field and uh, trying to understand epitopes and how they're recognized, you also have uh, as part of your, of your contribution to the field, you are part of, you're part of the group that is behind uh, this database that is called the immune epitope database and i actually i've used sometimes so it was very very interesting to see that you know the 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 face behind the tool and i don't know if you maybe want to talk a little bit about your motivation for or whether you, why do you think it's important to have these databases and what i if, whether you think they are uh, fostering collaboration or um in case maybe some of our listeners would be interested in using such a database, what do you think it's important about having these tools out there? Right, yes. So uh, the IDB, as you mentioned, is Immune Epitope Database, has uh, also been uh, up uh, from uh, early 2000, and it's freely available to everybody and has all the uh, epitopes from infectious disease, allergens, autoimmunity. And now there's a sister database called CEDAR for the cancer uh, 
component. And it's a catalog of all the uh, information that is uh, uh, published in the literature. So it's not our data, it, it's everybody's data. And um, the motivation for that, it uh, uh, stands back again from our point of view from the early 2000. Already, actually, when I was at Epimune, it was very hard to keep things straight. <laughs> because we did so many experiments with different epitopes and then uh, other people also had experiments with epitopes. And so we are saying, well, when was this tested? What's the data? Is there any binding data? Is there any T-cell recognition data? And so it became clear that to really have an ongoing effort would be extremely beneficial to have a, a database where you could actually query and extract that. Um, and so then uh, when I went back to academia uh, at the same point, very uh, um, uh, coincidentally, the NIH um, had an interest in developing this database. And uh, so, we, so we did. And the fundamental concept of this database is really it's an epitope database, but it's not. It's really an assay database. And, and let me explain. Um, so at that point, when we were starting to say, OK, let's make a database of all the different epitopes, essentially two ways to do it. You could have uh, some uh, group of very wise men and women uh, meeting once a year under a tree and going over and decide what is good data and what is bad data, and these are the good epitopes, this is uh, the bad epitopes. And, and I, I thought that that was not <laughs> the approach. And so what we said, we're just gonna curate everything that the people say, and then empower the user to make their decision. And so basically, if you're interested in, I don't know, epitopes against uh, derived from, uh, um, influenza. Well, okay, maybe you want, you don't believe any experiment that uh, does not use live virus. Okay, you can search for that. Or we only want to see things that are in humans but not in mice, or only things that measure interferon gamma and so forth. So that the, the database has all the actual assays and you can actually search for the assay that fit your. And I'd like to do the example in, in a way is like if you do a search of PubMed and say you do a search on the PubMed of tyrosine kinase beta, whatever. You just want to know everything that is known about that. You don't want to know which papers the PubMed staff thought were pretty good. Uh, and it, it's... It, it's your call. You get all the results and then you figure out which one you like, which one you don't like, and you may uh, narrow or broaden the search as you please. So I think we could talk a lot longer about epitopes, but we, we do we do unfortunately get to have a time limit for these conversations. So at the end, you know, we like to ask a question. It's not quite as science related uh, about our guest. And so the question for you is when you're not mapping the world's epitopes, 
Uh, what do you do as a hobby or wish you had more time to do? Because epitope mapping takes takes a ton of work, as we just discussed. Um, yeah, I mean, so um, one good thing uh, maybe about COVID is actually it increased our capacity to work remotely. Uh, and so actually it has been uh, easier, not just for me, I mean, in general, for people to uh, to uh, work and actually work more sometimes because whatever I am, <laughs> but also to have more uh, more freedom. Uh, I, I love doing lots of different things. I uh, still have a lot of uh, connection with Italy. I still uh, run a farm in Southern Italy <laughs> where I go <laughs> there every once in a while. Uh, it's a, it's a interesting dimension. Uh, very non-epidope related, uh, but I love it. What are the crops of your farm, if I may ask? There's uh, wheat, pigs, uh, some olives, some almonds. Uh, yeah. Uh, and the, the farm has been there forever. And, you know, the, the guy that runs the farm for me, uh, his grandfather ran the farm for my grandfather. So it, it's 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 a very special place. That's one thing. And then in uh, the other thing that I do, um, I love uh, fencing. I always fenced, and uh, I I still uh, uh, compete uh, in fencing tournaments with dubious success uh, uh, as I'm getting older. But uh, I still do. Next year, uh, next uh, next month, I'm going to be actually at the national championship for. Uh, uh, Epe in uh, uh, in Phoenix, and uh, that to a degree also created a relationship with the San Diego Opera. Uh, so, as you know, there is uh, in a lot of operas there are some uh, swordmanship, uh, some fencing, some uh, uh, <clears throat> fights, and so forth, and so. Uh, we develop a relationship with them, and uh, um, often we go and do operas. Uh, we don't sing. I don't sing. I, I could not sing for the uh, life of me. But uh, we do uh, supers, uh, uh, supernumerary uh, um, roles. So last uh, couple of months ago, I did uh, the Tosca. I was a custodian in... Uh, uh, Stel Sant'Angelo, uh, scrubbing the floor of the blood after the executions. Uh, and uh, uh, my wife was particularly pleased because she said, oh, this is, I pay good money to see you on your knees scrubbing the floor because certainly you don't do that at home. <laughs> oh, no. That's so funny. That's 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 awesome. For the pigs, do you, do, is it Iberico ham? Or any of that? No, I bury guys from my the bury oh, Peninsula. Right? Yeah. Oh my yeah, gosh, that's, yeah. that's my bad. No, what was it? David, what, what David. Italian pig? Yeah, but that they the prosciutto. They, the prosciutto. prosciutto. The, prosciutto the, the good prosciutto is up north in Parma and mm. uh, and so forth. Now these these are these are good pigs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more interested. I'm more curious about the olives and and the almonds. I mean. Of course, you know, world famous Italian olive oil. 
Do you give extra virgin olive oil as a gift to people who graduate, like a little bottle to take with you? No, uh, actually, it's it. Sadly, I I I don't bring it. It it's so it, it's complicated, and it's you have to have uh, export laws and all uh, that. Yeah, yeah, and it's. I, I just buy it at the the grocery store, like uh, anybody else. So well, <laughs> terrible. You have your own farm and you can't bring it over. I know the rules of international commerce, right? But you do get to enjoy it when you go visit. So, you know, so I guess that's, that's, that's good because then you keep it. It's something to look forward to. Um, yeah. 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 We're, uh, we're going, uh, now in uh, July. Um, wonderful. Oh man. If only. It was such a pleasure uh, talking to you today and, and hearing about your your uh, your research and your 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 uh, story uh, as as a researcher and uh, thank thanks for sharing uh, with us today. And Jason, anything you want to add? Oh no, that's it. I will have to go review my ham geography, but I'm just going to blame it on being Jewish. Please, <laughs> yes, no. That's there's there are Jewish people all over the world, so that's that's just no, me. no. We don't eat pork that much yeah like you know sure knowledge of ham is low i'm just gonna blame it on that and run away but we have chicken yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's kosher right yeah you're good all right all right all right jason and brenda thank you very much for uh having me today i really enjoyed it it's a pleasure a pleasure this brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Podcast or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. See you next time.